Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series created by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. This is the podcast that shows you how well-being touches every part of your life. We all need to eat. We all need to have our basic human needs looked after. We're trying to make it simple, easy and fun to do something that we've always been doing and we've just forgotten how to do. We're basically trying to reinvent consumption. In this episode, you're going to hear from entrepreneur Sasha Celestial Wan. Sasha is on a mission to achieve zero waste across our world. She's the co-founder of an app called Olio. Olio helps you share your waste food with people around you who might want it or need it. Sasha's background led her to this point. She grew up with hippie parents who believed in reusing and recycling as much as possible. When she was a child, Sasha helped her mum retrieve treasures from skips in downtown Iowa, which they then sold from their front lawn. In this episode of Health to Wealth, you'll hear how Sasha's story came full circle via a rebellious period in conventional finance to the founding of Olio with her close friend Tessa in 2016. You'll also get an insight into Sasha's experience of attracting investment and what that says about our approach to well-being from a business perspective right now. Sasha, welcome to the Health to Wealth podcast. Tell me if you will, how does one person sharing their surplus food with their neighbours change the course of the world as we know it? Well, how does one person doing anything change the course of the world as we know it? Um, And I guess it's just a deep fundamental belief that lots and lots of small actions at scale can lead to transformational change. And it's all interconnected. So if we take a look at the macro picture, we've got 40% or more of the world's food that's produced never being eaten, which is a colossal drain on resources and has um, accounts for nearly 10% of global carbon emissions. So it's a very, very large part of the climate emergency that we're facing is driven by inefficiencies in our food supply chain and the food that goes to waste. And then if we sort of dial it right back down to the individual level, here in the UK, 71% of food waste takes place in our homes. And that's everyday people like you and I who are throwing away a quarter of our weekly shop. And most of it, it's not waste. We say waste, but that's misleading. It's food that we haven't gotten around to eating or that we just, um, for whatever reason, we aren't going to make sure is eaten in time and it's edible at the time that it's thrown away. And when you multiply that by, I don't know, 25 million households in the UK times the whole world, you can see how all of the math stacks up. I really, really do believe that every carrot or cupcake if it has a chance to be eaten, the most efficient and optimal outcome is for that to be eaten. And anything less than that is really just adding up to the climate crisis that we're facing. And do you think a consciousness around controlling food waste in our everyday lives impacts our personal feelings of well-being? Absolutely. When we first started out, we did quite a bit of market research, which we backed up with YouGov polls, et cetera. And, you know, more than a third of people will say that they feel physically pained when they throw away food that is edible or was very recently edible. Our personal well-being is being impacted by us letting something of value go to waste. That goes against every survival instinct in our body. And that just doesn't feel good. It feels very unsettling. And we're very hardwired not to enjoy wasting something in that way. And conversely, giving something of value to another human, we are hardwired to get um, an energy and a, an actual chemical boost from because that's how we keep our species alive. So I think it's only in the last you know 40 or 50 years that we've lost 
what is really something that's as old as humankind, which is is sharing. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it simple, easy and fun to do something that we've always been doing and we've just forgotten how to do. You know, circling back to your personal background, which is enthralling, at the heart of of Olio is your upbringing and you've come full circle back to that. Could you tell me more about that and, and how much of those childhood values are feeding what you do today and indeed who you are? So I had a very untraditional upbringing. My parents really were what you would call hardcore hippies. So my they made up my last name, Celestial One. I was born in a cabin. My mom was a midwife. I was raised as a vegetarian. Um, I just had a really sort of untraditional childhood. They were entrepreneurs as well. They started a wholesale natural foods product company. And it took a long time. It wasn't until I was a teenager for that to be successful. I was the oldest of six kids. Uh, my parents did separate in primary school. I spent a lot of time supporting my mom, helping to make ends meet. So we used to go to houses that were being torn down and take, I, I can remember very clearly taking lots of wooden banisters for stairways, toilet fixtures, taps, things like that, things that could be repurposed or resold. I think the sort of lack of financial security combined with probably just being a kid who wants the you know material items like new things, I did find it rather embarrassing. I, f- I felt I, my experience growing up was one of a child who felt poor. It's not like we didn't have enough to eat or anything like that. That's I don't want to over-egg it, but new things were a rarity as opposed to the norm. And I think in America, and I'm sure many other cultures, there's a sense of shame with having not having enough money, a sense of shame associated with not being able to consume and buy new latest things. And I absorbed a lot of that. And I did my own personal form of rebellion was to you know, study really hard at school and study economics, become an investment banker, and then a management consultant. Oh, my goodness, my mom, you know, the tragedy. My parents are big hippies and, and really valued independent thinking. And I went very much into collective group thinking and, and just tried to pursue the most safe career I could. And I, you know, I went too far. Like when I was in my 20s living in New York City, I, you know, just senseless, horrible, reckless displays of consumerism. <laughs> but really, I think I felt always felt quite disconnected from our natural environment. And it was with great relief when I was on maternity leave back in 2012, when I had the opportunity so that I could pursue starting my own business and solve a problem that I was personally experiencing, which was lack of childcare as an expat. And it really felt like coming home in terms of waking up and thinking about how I'm going to independently tackle a problem that I really care about and bring a solution to life. And if it wasn't for the fact that I benefited from the free childcare from that business, I wouldn't have had the time and space to dream big with Olio and partner up with Tessa. And that was seven years ago. And so I can see how it all fits together. And I feel so proud to forward uh, my monthly newsletter or investor report to my mom and my dad, because I know that what I'm achieving and what we're achieving with Olio is a direct reflection um, of something that not only the world needs, but I was lucky enough to have parents teach me when I was a child. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. It really is. When you think back to your rebellion years, and then you say you mm. um, you went on maternity and that gave you the space to really reflect on where you were and alignment with your own values. Can you recall mm. what the eureka moment was for the idea of Olio? 
The eureka moment for me for the idea of Oleo was when my co-founder Tessa told me about a personal experience that she just had moving house. She had some non-perishable food that she thought she'd be able to pack. And the removal men said, absolutely not, no food in the packing boxes. And so she went out in the street with her two small children uh, in the middle of winter and tried to find someone to give this food to. Perfectly good food. And it was embarrassing. And she didn't find anyone. And in frustration and tears, she ended up packing the food, you know, sneaking the food into the boxes anyway. At that time, Tessa and I had been looking for an opportunity together. We'd been looking for an environmental challenge to tackle. So we sat there and we Googled it and we're like, holy cow. $1.2 trillion worth of food goes to waste every year. We just had no idea of the scale of the problem. And so learning how big the problem was, combined with an obvious gap in the market for a a sharing economy type platform, and sharing economy sort of was all the rage five, six years ago, we just instantly knew that Oleo was something we wanted to bring to life. And it was really born out of her experience. You know, I'm listening to you and, and, and knowing that values, alignment, financial security. These are all things that are really important to you and your own purpose and what you're, what you're serving, if you will, to the world. As you and Tessa were developing this, at what point did you start to think or feel, gosh, I think this could work? I think for me, working on something that does align with my values is incredibly important. And now that I found it, I would never want to go back to not doing that. Um, I would say that I've grown out of the idea or I've conditioned myself out of the uh, of being reliant on financial security as a metric of personal happiness. In the beginning, we didn't get paid. You know, for the first nine, 10 months, Tess and I bootstrapped entirely. It was just the two of us eating up our savings. I honestly believe that we thought it was going to work from day one, though. And if we hadn't had that conviction, 100% conviction, I'm not sure that, that we would have pursued it. Now, of course, both of us, we met at business school, we're ex-consultants, we know how to take um, a problem for which we feel in our bones is the right thing to do and sanity check it by putting it through sort of rigorous stress testing. You know, we did market research, we did proof of concept, we follow a lean startup, minimum viable product approach, rapid iteration. Like we have, of course, learned and used all the best practices out there to give ourselves every chance of success because just because you believe something's going to work doesn't mean that it will, but Also, I think you have to manifest something, and there's not really room in something like this for doubt. So you're either all on board or you're not. And and we've jumped in, and we're all on board, and now it's all about sort of assembling the airplane as we fly it. And that confidence that you've just described, that's incredibly important for raising finance. You've had amazing success in your recent investment round. Tell me, if you will, the extent of Olio's success and how you measure that success. So we we have about 6 million people using the app all over the world. We've seen sharing take place in 62 markets successfully. We've raised five rounds of financing in total well over $50 million. And, you know, we've grown the team to a global team of 100 now. And we're really, all of us collectively, mission-obsessed. And our mission is to get to 1 billion people using Olio Not every day, that's probably a bit too much, but on a very regular basis by the end of the decade so that we can share our most precious resources rather than sending them straight to landfill and destroying our planet in the process. I think we've been successful at fundraising for a variety of reasons. One, we do have that conviction and conviction is contagious. And two, the problem we're solving, which is 
because um, we're focused on food, but there's we also have a very active non-food section where people share and give away items. And we're basically trying to reinvent consumption, you know, at the biggest level by making sure that everything we have within our communities is leveraged uh, and shared to its maximum value until the end of its useful life. And the TAM on that is really, you know, this is really big. So for investors who may or may not be as interested in our social mission or environmental mission, they can clearly get their heads around the commercial potential of something that is relevant to hundreds of millions of people. And that would be my advice to anyone who's looking to start to start a business, but also wants to work on something that gives them that sense of purpose and, you know, that they're really working on solving one of the world's most important problems, um, is to find something, find a problem that's really big and also where your social and environmental metrics are a complete lockstep with your commercial value. And what you've just described is is absolutely in the, dare I say, the sweet spot of investment trend at the moment from impact investment, mm-hmm. ESG. You, or rather Olio, epitomizes that impact investment. If you were going to cut, if I can say that, a difference between the percentage lean on advantages of, of social over commercial in your investment mm. success. How would you split that? I would say it's 95% commercial. Interesting. It really is. With some exception, we don't even really talk about the environmental impact because it, it can be a red flag, unfortunately, for some potential investors if they think that you're sort of prioritizing for two different outcomes. Now, obviously, we do have a few impact investors who have been incredible, but they're not, they've not led our rounds, for example, and they're not the largest shareholders on our cap table. We do lead front and center with our impact potential. But I think the most important thing is to just know your investor and know your audience. And different investors will want to see different things from you and doing the prep and rehearsing. Like we have a motto at Oleo, which is ABF, always be fundraising. It's it's like dating, you know, you can't sort of just date once or twice a year and then hope to, you know, be happily sort of however it is that you define happiness, settle down with 2.4 children and three dogs or something like you have to keep you have to really keep putting yourself out there. But it's a lot easier to do that when you can present a really compelling financial case. And then that sort of is the basic hygiene. And then the rest of it comes down to to chemistry and timing. I want to expand on what Sasha's talking about funding-wise here, because what she's just said is important, that when people invest in Olio, 95% of their reason for doing so is down to commercial measurements like profit, return, value, and growth. When I first spoke to Sasha, I must admit I was a little surprised at that figure, and I'll explain why in a moment, but it got me wondering, how does Olio make money? Sasha sent me a voice note to explain. Olio makes money by charging larger businesses for our Food Waste Heroes program, which helps those businesses such as Predemanger, Tesco, Compass Catering, and many, many more achieve their zero edible food waste goals. And um, last year, we also introduced um, a premium version of the app. So if you want to support our mission and unlock some extra features, you can pay a small monthly subscription fee to do so. So I'm surprised about that commercial investment success figure of 95% because you might expect that with a business like Olio, they might attract investors who are more interested in Olio's social and environmental impact potential than by their financial performance. But what Sasha's saying is that financial performance is still vitally important. 
Let's talk about the difference between those two things. When it comes to social and environmental impact potential, you often hear the term ESG. ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. ESG investing means that when making an investment, it demonstrates that you care about the impact on the environment and society at the same time as making money. But when you're raising funds for something like this, it doesn't all begin and end with ESG. It begins with all that matters with money, it moves into ESG, and at the other end of the spectrum is philanthropy, which of course is is just all about giving. Forget about the profit, it doesn't matter. Before we get to philanthropy, there's impact investment. And impact investment has similarities with ESG, but it has a much harder lean and more weight into genuine impact, measurable impact of human and planetary benefit that is as important as profit and perhaps even more so. So the example that Sasha has given us, which is real life, this is a real example, 95% commercial, 5% the nobility and the value of what Olio is doing. But make no mistake, expect change. Expect a greater lean towards climate, a greater lean more to the impact investment end of the investment spectrum than the 95% commercial and 5% purpose and meaning. And as you'll hear, what Sasha's experience shows you is that there is a real resonance around well-being, impact and ESG with the decision makers who lean more towards the commercial side when it comes to investment. Over the last couple of years, we've certainly seen that there are not only more sort of impact-specific funds who have raised larger impact funds. Previously, they've been a niche or have a smaller sort of fund value. But we've also seen more traditional funds put on what I would say their ESG hat and like actively start looking for investments, companies to invest in that meet their criteria, but are also helping them to achieve their own fund-specific goals. And you see this trickle-down coming from all different directions, from all stakeholders. And it's like, as everyone starts to set their own targets, then it filters up and filters down. With that well-being core, what is it about sharing food that links us to that human and planetary well-being? And, you know, we talked about impact and, and ESG. Is there more to it than that? So what we have at Olio that makes it so special is that every day, tens of thousands and every week, hundreds of thousands of people are meeting in real life to give for free or receive for free items that are no longer wanted. So actually someone is outside right now picking up a packet of green grapes that I ordered because they were outer red grapes. And I knew my son was not going to fall for this trick. He had a few green grapes and then said, "Uh uh-uh, mommy, put them on oleo. And that's happening thousands of times a day all over the world. And the reason that's, for me, exciting is because it's just the very basic act of human kindness and decency and looking after each other. And that I feel connected to the other people who are using oleo in my community. I don't feel like just because I'm giving and they're receiving, or sometimes it's the other way around, that there's some type of hierarchy. It's just completely at the most basic level, 
Look, we all need to eat. We all need to have our basic human needs looked after. But more importantly, we need to belong. And through Oleo, I feel like I'm helping other people meet their basic needs. I'm belonging to a community of like-minded people who are able to maybe think one or two steps ahead of the bin. And I feel like that if we could just get enough people doing this together, that maybe we could help mitigate the effects of the climate crisis, which we got into through trillions of thoughtless actions. And if trillions of thoughtless actions or billions got us into it, then maybe the inverse of an equal number of positive thoughtful actions, such as making sure a packet of grapes doesn't go to waste, could actually collectively make a real difference. And I want to be part of making a difference for our planet and making sure that my son has a has a planet to live on and his children, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm hearing, Sasha, is almost another very noble layer to Olio. It is fundamentally about a zero tolerance to food waste, but it's also about kindness, about community, about bringing people together, volunteers, equality, equity, meeting basic needs, Maslow's hierarchy. Mm. That role that volunteers are playing, I mean, it's it's huge to Olio, isn't it? Yeah, we have um, 80,000 volunteers who either rescuing unsold food from supermarkets, caterers, you know, any events, any type of food business really that has unsold food that can't be donated to charity that would go to be thrown away at the end of the day. These volunteers take that food and they bring it home and they safely redistribute it to their neighbors from their own house. And that's happening many thousands of times a week in multiple markets, feeding people, but connecting people in real life in a, in a very sort of human experience of, of giving and sharing and receiving of food. And what you said earlier, I mean, we often say that the currency at Oleo is kindness. When we first started, we allowed people to put a price on different items, and that did not last very long because it just felt so contradictory to our values and what it is we were trying to achieve. We have very much have a share it forward mentality, and we say it takes two to tango. You know, it's not enough to just give away, like it's of equal importance to pick up and collect things that other someone else doesn't want anymore. And um, yeah, I sort of just really like the simplicity of what we're trying to do and the sort of alternative economy in some ways, the community-based peer-to-peer economy that we're trying to create. This is a different way of being, a different way of of, of community living. I know you've said in the past that mass consumer behavior change is possible. You believe that. What is it about your experience with Olio that's convinced you that that is the case and it's becoming even more prevalent as Olio grows? So mass consumer behavior change, I do believe it's possible. There are historical examples, absolutely. But it's it's so hard and there's no magic formula and it takes time. So on the one hand, my belief that things that, that we can have, you know, massive changes in mindset towards societal topics, towards groups of people, you know, towards behavior, I'm encouraged by that. But I have to admit, I am worried about the pace at which of change that we need versus the mathematical facts of looking at forecasted temperature rises. Putting that aside, because all entrepreneurs are optimists, and I'm no less um, so, every additional person that joins up to Oleo and joins up to our cause makes it easier for the next person. By definition, we have network effects. It's just more likely, you know, the more of us there are that are using Oleo, the lower the barrier to usage, because you can share a half a lemon. And I know that sounds silly, but if someone's literally upstairs from you or next door, they might pop around for half a lemon. 
What I've seen is in many, many countries, the exact same pattern of behavior emerge where we get the early adopters who come in, who will travel far and wide to rescue just about anything. And then as we layer on more and more people and we have word of mouth and we have volunteers spreading the word, then we bring more and more mainstream people into our ecosystem. Therefore, I've just got this hypothesis that I've seen reinforced in lots of places, which is we just need to get to scale. And in getting to scale, by definition, we make it more attractive for people who aren't yet there in their thinking, right? Who still don't, aren't even thinking about food waste. But by the time we get the late adopters in, it will be such a valuable proposition with so much stuff going on, you know, upstairs from you, downstairs from you, next door, that it'll be a no-brainer to participate. And they can participate purely from a rational perspective as opposed to maybe from an emotional or um, a moral perspective. And Sasha, you you live an extraordinarily busy life. How has your own behaviour changed, or maybe not, that means you honour your own well-being? I have definitely learned to slow down, and I have definitely learned the power of saying no. And I think in the beginning of anything you really care about, when you really just want to make something happen, it can be horrifying to say no to opportunities because you just think like, what if this is the one time when I'm going to meet the one person who's going to write the one check, who's going to make the one partnership happen that's like going to make or break, you know, all of Oleo. And in the beginning, I said yes to everything and it was exhausting. And it just through almost probably just getting to the point of exhaustion where I realized I needed to to scale things back and prioritize. But I'm lucky that I'm at a point, I think, as well in my sort of my career and my life where I don't need to persuade myself that a good night's sleep, my daily dose of exercise, walking to and from the school, pausing and sitting and trying to just let the sun when it's there, you know, rest on my face for a few minutes, eating well. These are things now that I have built good routines and habits around and that I really value. You know, Olio now we're in year seven. So it really is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It took me a while to figure that out, but I need to have energy for myself and my for, for my team for, for the long haul. Sasha, what's the single thing anyone starting a business with aspirations to change the world could learn mm-hmm. from what you've done with Olio? My single piece of advice to anyone who wants to start a business is to find a co-founder that you love and respect to accompany you on that journey. I wouldn't be able to do Olio without my co-founder, Tessa. As I said before, it's a long journey and you need to figure out how to enjoy even the uncomfortable parts. And it can really be helped when you've got a partner, a true partner by your side to do it with you. Two minds are better than one. So just be careful about who you decide to go into entrepreneurship partnership with. But I'm really lucky that Tessa, who I often call my work wife, and I get along fabulously and really look after each other. Wonderful. And it strikes me from those recent things you just said about trusting the journey, um, about uh, trusting and being discerning, in fact, about who you let close to you, who you trust um, in business as in life. And There's a suggestion, I think, that you're hoping that consumers may go through something that you've been through by being connected to Olio and and, and feeling those um, uh, nourishment, that nourishment, if I can say that, of 
acts of kindness, of sharing, of meeting other people, of providing to other people. Would that be accurate? Is that something that you've thought about previously? One of the things that we think Olio really has the potential to do is just remind us that we're just one of 8 billion people on the planet. It's really easy, especially in a city, to go about your day every day with very little thought for all of the other people who are living simultaneously their own lives with their own highs and lows. Sharing food and and household essentials is a way of reconnecting with our common humanity. I'm just going to tell you a little story about my mom, who my mom likes to think of everyone on the planet as one, a single cell in the human body. And we all have our different roles to play from fat cells to red blood cells. And that's her personal form of spirituality and how she thinks about things. And it's what she's what I've been raised not to believe in, but to at least appreciate as an analogy or metaphor. And so the first thing that I thought was that this is so similar, right? Like we're all on this planet together. And like when part of us um, isn't doing well or is infected or not nurtured, then it affects our entire collective organism. And that to me felt like a very natural way to think about the social and human and planetary interconnectedness that is coming to light in this series. What a gorgeous analogy from Sasha and such a wonderful way to describe health to wealth. Let's reflect on what Sasha and Tessa have done here. They have married together our desire for human connection and collaboration with technology in order to work together on one of the biggest challenges we face. Let's hear from Manuel Moniz, an international scholar who I spoke to about the impact that technology has on your well-being. Here's his take on the positive impact it can have. The opportunities are enormous, right? They're opportunities for the access to information, to education, to a global public debate. Uh, There are opportunities to be better connected, to connect with people that are like-minded or that share our preferences and our tastes and you know i we can build entirely new communities thanks to technology there are enormous uh, opportunities in technology to navigate and tackle uh, global challenges like climate change thanks to technology and the use of technology You'll hear more from Manuel about the pace of technological change and both the positive and negative impacts that can have in Manuel's episode for the Health to Wealth series. It's called Turning the Digital Tide. And for Sasha, I couldn't let her go without finding out what the Sasha of right now would say to the young Sasha who felt embarrassed about rescuing things from skips. That's a good question. If I was going to speak to my younger self who could probably have never have predicted sort of how her life would have turned out. I think I would just have reassured her that trust in the process of life, it might not be clear now, but there is a grander design that will present itself, maybe only in retrospect, but it becomes more and more available to you to trust in as you get older and get a bit wiser. At least that's certainly what, I, what I've experienced in an individual capacity. I'm in my mid-40s now, and how my relationship with the future and the past is a lot different than it was when I was earlier in in my life and maybe felt a lot of anxiety or trepidation about how things would unfold. I'm really lucky because even though I might have been embarrassed and felt like the poor weird kid, my parents always made me feel like I could do anything I wanted. I, I don't think I doubted that even then. 
Sasha, thank you for your transparency, your candidness. You've given me goosebumps several times over. Your passion is visceral. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth, a series created by Accor. Episodes on nutrition, on the impact of well-being to business performance, and the future of tech and its relationship to your well-being are all available now. Please rate, review, and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyaccor.com.